My guest this week was on my bucket list of writers I wanted to interview when I started this podcast three years ago. All my thanks to Mike Chisholm for making this happen. My guest has written for Dana Carvey, Chris Rock, Jimmy Kimmel, Jerry Seinfeld, Homer Simpson, and one of my all-time favorites, Norm MacDonald. But he's best known for his 13 years as head writer of Late Night and then Late Show with David Letterman. I'm excited to talk to four-time Emmy winner and Herb Sargent Award winner for comedy excellence, Mr. Steve O'Donnell. <laughs> you see, usually if I get to introduce myself, I mention working on Talk to Me with Kira Sedgwick and uh, the VH1 Fashion Awards, just just to lower the expectations, you know. <laughs> but thank you for that kind intro. And uh, uh, yes, and I agree, Mike Chisholm, one of the one of the great uh, enthusiasts and gentlemen in this in this world. Yes, he's that's what he is. He's an enthusiast. Yes, he's a he's a booster. Uh, in a way, there's a kind of paradox there because usually people that are into like semi postmodern comedy, they're sort of sardonic and jaded. And he's none of those things at all. He could be like a scout leader in the mid 20th century saying, follow me, boys. But uh, that's a nice combination. I, th I think he has multiple interests. I know he likes hockey. I know he likes wrestling. I know he likes his wife. These are all very wholesome things, I think. Well, except for the wrestling. <laughs> it's nice to meet you and nice to see you in person. You you have been an enthusiast and booster yourself, and you've actually done stand-up comedy. Yes. Um, I, oh, I guess I mentioned, yeah, I did for 10 years. But it was like oh, once a it. month. Was... Oh, yes. I was about to say that's a goodly stretch. But once a month, remember when I worked at the Kimmel Show and Sarah Silverman was in and out every single day, she'd 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 I hear her say like, "I got to go up tonight. I haven't been up for three nights, and I'm I'm losing it." It was like it was like you know practicing piano or 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 uh, working out is something she had to do as often as she could, or you would lose it. But you at least know what the what the experience is, and it's a it's unique that is for sure much I, it, I like writing i like being behind the scenes and i've been on shows where i was the only non-stand-up or non-performer in the group and that was very interesting to, to 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 see you mentioned norm mcdonald i have a special place in my heart for him that will be there forever it was so entertaining when his like he would talk about stand-ups and traveling and the clubs and the club managers and then his friends who were stand-ups would come by and they would go on and on and on about it. It really was like, I was like a kid listening to the stories about the 101st Airboard. I just like, wow, this is so great. It's something I would not be capable of, but loved to hear them talk about, <laughs> you know, which, which club had the lousiest condominium and what sort of foul things they would discover behind the couches. <laughs> yeah. I always ask the comedians about the condominiums when I have them on because they always have stories. Yes. And not to ask too many questions about you, because I frankly don't know how this works. You're from Long Island. Yes. Did, have I heard Massapequa or is that just your yes. phone? Yes, and that's Jerry Seinfeld's hometown as well, right? Yes, this is the fun. This is the funny part. Well, it's funny, I guess. Finally. <laughs> um. So he went to the same elementary school I did. He went to the same oh. high school that I went to, and he had the same history teacher, and he had the same gym coach. 
And then I went to work my part-time job at Genevieve's Drugstore. I don't know if you remember the Genevieve's Drugstore's chain in New York. But my first job was his first job. Wow. I went into stand-up. He went into stand-up. He's a billionaire. I'm hosting a podcast. So. there, I think there's some billionaires hosting podcasts. Certainly millionaires hosting podcasts. That, that is Certainly true. former comedians hosting podcasts. <laughs> that must be 90% of the podcast population um it, I, well when i met jerry and i'll start dropping names immediately uh um he was impressed that i knew the massapequa high school fight song i just because it had i had a friend in college who was from massapequa and I, all i remember now is that it had kind of a, a a tv commercial jingle sound to it it didn't sound like ba -ba 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 -ba. it was there was something like massapequa will win today was the little jingle at the end? Did they okay. still sing that when you were there? No. Oh, I don't remember the fight. But also, the uh, science teacher was Alec Alexander Baldwin, Alec Baldwin's dad. Wow, very interesting. Well, isn't it funny that speaking of Sarah Silverman, that that Adam Sandler and and she are both from the same town in New Hampshire? Yeah. Who expects two outstanding, powerful? Jewish American comics to come from the same town in New Hampshire. It's quite, quite amazing. Sometimes it, there, there's sense to it, you know, like, like, oh, oh my gosh, you're going to have to help me with some of the names. The, uh, uh, Jimmy Kimmel had an intern when he worked in radio in Arizona and kind of, I guess we can use the term groomed here, but he got, oh, Carson Daly. Is that, is that the, am I using the right word? Carson Daly? A yeah. guy? Became a That's teacher. a person, yes. Yeah. Yes. He was a protege of Jimmy's when he was a kid, and then he he and then he went on to do talk shows. And I will say that he had more of a sort of broadcaster host quality right. than he did. Right. He was a stand-up comic yeah. quality, but but that that there were those connections. That there were those connections. Larry Jacobson telling a story about knocking on Groucho's door, and then Groucho being a total dick about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, yes, I didn't have any experiences like that growing up. Yeah. I, my twin brother and I, who I, I may refer to him later, because it is not irrelevant to have a sort of partner, uh, a, a creative partner when you're uh, coming up the ladder. Uh, he and I went to see a play once in Cleveland, our hometown, that Edward Everett Horton was in. And we went backstage to chat with him. And he was delighted that these two little redheaded twins were big fans of him and fractured fairy tales and, and things like that. But I, no Groucho experience for me. I don't know who the, the who would have, I guess the first famous pe funny people I ever met was when I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to Harvard and get on the Harvard Lampoon. The old uh, Lampoon alums would come around and those included, you know, the, the, the national Lampoon people, the Doug Kenny and, and so on, but also John Updike and people like that. And I consider him fairly funny. Fred Wynn? Oh, Fred Gwynn did come around once or twice. Uh, I was there for several years when the Lampoon um, publication was celebrating its 100th anniversary. And I got to be the historian for that event. Uh, you're, you're a historian or history buff or history teacher. Uh, that you've done more assiduously than the stand-up, perhaps. You can't show up once a once a month for the teaching camp. <laughs> well, the, the the reason is you had to, when I did stand-up, you had to bring six people. So oh, oh no, oh yes, that's so awful. 
even when I was in New York two weeks ago, there, there, there were the young women and young men comics in front of the clubs. Do you like comedy? Do you like comedy? And they're handing up and you go like, oh, there's got to be a better way. I don't know what it is, though. I, I don't I don't have the answer, but it does seem tough that, yeah, the, the Brigham shows and the two drink minimums and so on. But uh, on the other hand, anybody who wants to do that for a living has got to be so dedicated and so focused that they will that they will wade through a lot of uh, bullshit to, to get to it eventually. Yes. And who are in your who is in your your phalanx, your peer group, your 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 when you were doing, were you appearing uh, in Manhattan ever or put in about a month's worth of work? I only say this because in, in 40 years of, of working as a writer, you'll do some really odd projects. A, a funny science show hosted by Jim Norton. And I thought it's an odd choice, but he was smart enough kind of, but it just never got off the ground. It wasn't a bad idea. I thought of it yesterday because I, I, I met with a, a a young woman comic who is very dedicated to doing uh, uh, full sets uh, uh, of stand-up about science and neuroscience. And she was really, it wasn't like, oh, she's going to have two jobs at once. She really wanted them to be the same thing. And I, and I thought, yeah, there should be more like that. Or she should at least be like the science reporter on some show. Anyway, that's great. And Jim Gaffigan, of course, just, just, successful beyond the dreams of, 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 of Croesus. That's wonderful. And seems to be a sweet guy too. And again, a little like, um, like our friend, Mike, some personal qualities that don't often go with to have the big family that he's very into and stuff. It's sweet. Um, and he's also funny. He's also like fireworks. People like him all over the spectrum, whether you're young or old or whatever. I just know all my sisters and brothers and cousins and stuff all, all love, love, love Jim Gaffigan. I will say that I think I'm a bit older than you, but, but um, used to go out because uh, uh, I had a couple of friends on Long Island. I remember going to a club called Rum Runners. I don't know if that still rings a bell. Anyway, oh. I used to see a not very well-known up-and-coming comic named Jackie the Joke Man Martling. And I thought, my God, this guy is nonstop funny and self-confident even though the jokes I'd almost all heard before in the schoolyard. But anyway, that's my Long Island, uh, that's my Long Island memory as far as stand-up clubs go. When I was a kid, I thought stand-up was unpleasant. I, th I thought everybody in my family, everybody on my street is funnier than, because we'd watch like the Hollywood Palace or Ed Sullivan show or something. And the stand-ups who would come on, it was all jokes about my mother-in-law and double parking. And I just went like, ugh, terrible. I think when I saw Robert Klein when I was in college, I went, oh, this can be done differently. I mean, I've since discovered, because I wasn't paying close enough attention as a kid, that there were some pretty excellent comics, uh, uh, even in the 50s and 60s. I was struck watching some Shelley Berman routine on YouTube a couple of weeks ago, like, oh, this is a little like Seinfeld. He'll pick a subject and he'll kind of ramble on it, you know, like, you can't really lump all the uh, the, the Sheckies and the Mortys and the Dinos and stuff all together. They're, they're, uh, they're, 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 there's some interesting examples. By the way, one of the last guests we had on one of the last podcasts that I did with Norm was Jack Carter. And just since you're a comedy historian, it seemed like he was an interesting and lightly controversial uh, entity, even when he was up and coming and vital, but he was very 
very fragile and feeble. And when he came in to do the podcast, he was in a wheelchair and looked so wan. But as soon as the camera went on, boom, he perked right up. People would say that about Rickles too. And some of the later appearances of Rickles on Kimmel and stuff, I would see him be, be gently placed pre preset as they would Ooh. say preset on the, on the guest chair. And you'd go, this is not going to be good. This is not going to be pretty, but then the camera would go on and, uh, and he would deliver, he'd be all full of energy. But Jack Carter at that point on the, on the, uh, on the, uh, the, the Norm Macdonald podcast, he just didn't give a fuck anymore. He was talking about how he feigned being insane to get out of the army during World War II because he was afraid of getting killed. <laughs> Isn't that irrational? Oh, wait, I guess it is sort of rational, but it's not something you usually share because it makes you look like such a weasel, you know. But uh, I always like it when comics reach a point where they don't care. Uh, and we might have a little RIP for for um, uh, Pat Cooper. Oh, my God, my brain. Just because he, I used to love when he would go off on other entertainers. Who who the hell is Lola Falana? You know, you just go like, oh, how satisfying that he's full of bile. David Brenner, back with a vengeance. That's the one. <laughs> David Brenner, I remember hosting the first other late night comedy variety talk show to go up against Letterman. You know, we were on after Carson, but there weren't really too many others. Famously, much more successful ones followed. Arsenio Hall being the most uh, uh, spectacular. Uh, but uh, uh, there were some others that came, Pat Sajak and so on came and went. But anyway, David Brenner, yes, interesting. For a while, he was in the Guinness Book of World Records as the person who had the most number of appearances on television ever. Uh, he may have been uh, outstripped by that by someone more boring, like some Today Show host or something like that. But I think it's Regis. Regis, I got to work with Regis a number of times. As long as I'm, as long as my function here is to drop anecdotes about comedy. Sorry about the phone dinging, but oh, I was wondering where that was coming from. <laughs> there's so nobody you, in my house. And I had a little phone conversation before the before the recording began. Anyway, I, I worked with Regis a hundred times because he was always coming on to save the day at, at, at Letterman. But the weirdest one was we did a bit called uh, Staff Gym Teacher Stories. And they were all true, but we recreated them. And mine was that I had got knocked unconscious uh, by a low hanging pipe in the basement of my high school because it was raining outside. So they gave us our track tests in the basement of the high school. So I'm running as fast as I can doing the hundred yard dash. And I hit a hit a low hanging pipe and the gym teacher came out and cradled my head in his arms and kind of brought me around. But we had Regis Philbin play my gym teacher. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, he delightfully gave a little speech that I wrote where he's just going, don't take this one, God, don't take O'Donnell. Come on, O'Donnell, live, live you thick skulled Irish bastard. And uh, my actual gym teacher, who also was flown out for the bit, it was a little confusing because we had the actual gym teachers there as well, uh, couldn't have been more delighted could, that he was portrayed by Regis Philbin. And Letterman gave me, I, I don't know if it's a compliment or not, but he said, your gym teacher is the only one that looks like a gym teacher. The other staffers were all from nice little suburbs and their gym teachers all looked like Chad Everett or, uh, or, or, uh, uh, 
you know, some professional lady tennis player or something. Mine looked like a Marine Corps drill sergeant with the flat top crew cut and the, 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 the stern expression. In fact, I don't know that I'd ever seen him laugh until he saw Regis Philbin portraying him. It, it also was of interest that my actual gym teacher, um, uh, 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 Bill Quayle was his name, uh, uh, we offered to fly him to New York, put him in a hotel, have him on the show. And he said he didn't want to be in a hotel, just fly him out, do the bit and fly him back to Cleveland. <laughs> that was that, that was his outlook. But anyway, it all worked out and God bless Regis Philbin and uh, 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 he just definitely will be missed. He's a hard kind of comic quantity to quite put your finger on because you wouldn't put together a book full of hilarious quotes from Regis because he was more like a force, sort of an energy. It was his, it, it, we were always backstage at, 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 at NBC and he'd be going, Letterman, Letterman, is this funny? O'Donnell, is this funny? Is this funny? Why am I doing this? And we would always just say, it's okay, Regis, just do it. It'll be fine. And Seven times out of ten, it was fine. I gotta commend you on your Regis impression, by the way. That was <laughs> I don't. I'm like Norm Macdonald. I say I don't do impressions. It used to be very entertaining to be around Norm. He said he was so terrified doing. Now I'm telling Norm's own anecdotes, like his audition for Saturday Night Live. He was supposed to do. He said I just don't do impressions. But he did them round the clock. He did a great Clint Eastwood. He did a great disturbing. The last show we did together was a Netflix show called Norm Macdonald Has a Show. And there was a, a very interesting hour plus long interview with Jane Fonda. And the first 15, 20 minutes, it doesn't look like they like each other very much. It's quite unpleasant. But but um, as time goes on, they, they, they warm up. But but early on in the in the conversation, uh, they're talking about their pasts and their philosophical influences. And the subject comes up of Jesus Christ, who had been some kind of role model or figure or uh, passing fascination for Jane Fonda, as well as for Norm. And when Norm started talking about um, Jesus, he, he put on this um, William F. Buckley voice and started referring to Jesus as the pale Nazarene, the pale Nazarene. And you can tell that, that Jane Fonda doesn't know what to make of this at all. Like, are you putting me on or what? But as the minutes go by, she understands he's just a goofball. And they came to, I think, really like each other at the end of the hour. There was a, there was a, a, 92% sincere hug at the end of the show, which by Hollywood standards is very close to an actual hug. So um, uh, th that was something else. The, and the, and the, the Clint Eastwood thing. It's funny the things that you will get to do that you didn't intend to do and you didn't expect to do and were extra delights just tacked on. I did with Norm a not successful but wonderful experience show for Comedy Central called The Sports Show. Watched it. Yes, but it, we were always being told you, you 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 picked a bad name. People think it's just about sports and blah, and and of course it covered so many things. Sports was the focus, but so many things went sideways and weirdly up and down. Uh, I was always suggesting call it Sports Show Plus. But anyway, I wrote a bit where where in the middle of a sort of uh, monologue at the desk, Norm is handed a a notice or something that he reads and goes, oh, I've just gotten a memo from the network. We're not going to be sports show anymore. I guess 
the format changes. Now we're going to be a Western. And we just smash cut to him riding a horse and shooting a, just instantly. And um, for that reason, I got to spend a day in Griffith Park, a, a, the park here in Los Angeles, with like horse wranglers and gunsmiths and stuntmen. We shot this minute long Western at very fast pace. But like, I never thought I'd be working on a Western. But for one day, I actually got to do that. And I thought, this is really, uh, well, it's it, it, it's a blessed and fun and fortunate uh, working life to have had. But then to have those those little things like that. But all during the day, even though we never used it once in the actual Western pre-tape, um, Norm was doing his Clint Eastwood voice, which was so simmering and so perfect. Um, yes, he was a delight to be around. And yeah. just even after knowing him two decades, mysterious a little bit you never really knew you never entirely knew but you knew he was smart and funny and brave just not really did not care uh, uh would go ahead and do jokes that he knew would not would not get a response just because he loved them this uh, morning on the radio on the sports talk station in new york they were talking about the espies was last night and they oh. were talking about when he hosted, and he said yes. Charles Charles Woodson has the Heisman Trophy. <laughs> Never be able to take that away from you, unless you kill your wife and a waiter. It, it it really doesn't get more perfect than that, right? Every syllable is is right. And I think, to his credit, I think uh, the the Heisman Trophy winner gave a kind of like "ouch," but funny kind of. Uh, response. I mean, he didn't. He didn't wince and frown and shake his fist or anything. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, Norm. He he uh, he also enjoyed the fact that I knew next to nothing about sports. That really amused him. So when I would write a joke, it would be way different from his sports obsessed friends and peers. I think one of the first jokes he did. I did did some promos for sports show before we were even taping, and one of them was like, you know, tonight on sports show. Concussions, good or bad, or or they'd be like, uh, if you really, if you want to shatter a basketball backboard, tell it it's adopted. <laughs> he liked that it would go off, that it would go off in some weird, weird direction, and 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 on some radio appearances when radio was still a thing, he would repeat a story I told about growing up, as I've mentioned already a few times in Cleveland, Ohio. There was a professional hockey team called the Cleveland Barons, and their little cartoon logo was a guy in a top hat and a monocle, you know, playing hockey with a hockey stick. And I said, wearing a monocle during a hockey game has got to be a very serious safety hazard. And Norm thought that was funny. It is a bad idea to play hockey wearing a monocle. I wonder if anyone's ever done it, maybe in Finland or Sweden or Germany somewhere. Um, anyway, now I've run out of my sports stories, but was it, oh, by the way, Norm, who did not drive a car, he was one of several, you, you probably know uh, half a dozen of those characters that are stand-up comics and successful, but don't drive. Norm was such a one, but he could throw a spiral football almost a hundred yards. He had a great arm a great arm and we were in our you know middle age when that we were doing that show uh anyway he, a, a very interesting guy to be around yeah I, if you've read his book you're struck like oh my god besides doing stand-up he's he's a pretty good not just pretty good beautiful prose writer 
the, the, the narrative in the book is so great. And somebody like you or Mike or others who would have some background in comedy, especially delect that book because his memoir, based on a true story, half of it is true. And if you sort of have heard him tell enough stories on other people's shows, you, you go, oh, okay, this part about Rodney Dangerfield is true. Okay, this part about David Spade is true. Okay, this part about uh, uh, going out into the desert to meet with some mysterious gangland tycoon, it's probably not true, but you don't really know. Or the part about him, uh, uh, the, the, the mysterious traumatic experience that happens in the shed while he's a boy on a farm in Canada. <laughs> uh, by the way, that story would change from time to time about his upbringing, that he grew up on a farm and so on. I, his parents, I think, were both teachers. His dad, a math teacher. I think he he said once that he had his dad as his math teacher and he had to call him Mr. McDonald. Oh, well, I had um, one of my sisters as a student teacher when I was in junior high school and I had to call her Miss O'Donnell. But um, so, yeah, that'll happen, especially in a sort of... Uh, Something in the Great Lakes area, perhaps. He was, he was funny because I remember that they would, sh they would have ads on the Cleveland television when I was a kid that urged people to come visit Canada. And they had the oddest little catchphrase, which was Canada, friendly, familiar, foreign, and near. <laughs> I went like, that's like a bunch of adjectives that the computer just randomly generated. Well, you now must, uh, as I have, I didn't have disrespect for Canadians as a kid, but as an adult and working in comedy, I now think how it, it, just so, so many of my very, very favorites are, are Canadian. Uh, uh, um, I, just to continue with the shambling chaos, I think the favorite TV show I ever saw was SCTV. You know, when they were doing the, the, the we now begin our broadcasting day with blah, blah, blah. I just thought it was, I was so delighted all the way through. And it wasn't really jokety joke jokes. And there wasn't an audience. Uh, I can't even remember if there was laughs or canned laughs or whatever. Early, early episodes. Yeah, I, but just, I could still watch those forever. Still yeah. watch those forever. Just the faces, just Andrea Martin, just Catherine O'Hara. They're so wonderful, so wonderful. Um, when I was a kid, I don't know if I've mentioned I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. They had a late night, um, once a week horror movie, uh, you know, show just for the local Northeast Ohio area, hosted by a guy they called Goulardi. And this came on after the news, you know, it went from 11.30 to past midnight, 12.30, 1 o'clock. And when we were kids, we thought it was the coolest thing in the world. He, 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 had the, he had a goatee and a weird, crazy hat and an eye patch. And Ernie Anderson was the actor who played Goulardi, who went on to become the, the, the in-house announcer at ABC. On the love boat. Yeah, love boat, yes. McMillan and wife. Dodge <laughs> trucks are ram tough. Um, but he did crazy things. He would insert himself into the horror movies via green screen. Uh, he would he would blow up little model cars with M80 firecrackers. 
there'd be there'd be these crazy doo-wop or surf music playing. He was always playing Papa Who Mau Mau or 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 uh, 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 or he would play polka music because polka music was big in Cleveland with the square old uh, our our immigrant parents set. And he he either loved or mocked or drew the fun out of the polka music. But when I was a kid, I just said, this would be the greatest thing in the world to work on a seemingly chaotic, mocking, funny, oddball show that is nothing like he he would recall he would address the cameras. He goes, Camera four, hey, camera four, turn blue. You're a purple kniff, which is think backwards. And when you're eight years old, you think that's the funniest insults in the world. But then in my 20s, I got to work on a crazy, semi-chaotic late night show hosted by Letterman. And um, so while I wasn't exactly uh, Larry Jacobson, whose whose course had been set uh, almost uh, ineluctably by fate and destiny, I was sailing, at least in that general direction, even in childhood. I know my dad uh, uh, always trying to teach me how to like fix carburetors and the fuel line. And like, if it isn't the batteries, it's the solenoids and it would go in one ear and out the other. Cause I'd always be sitting there. Can I go back inside and watch F troop or yeah. read bad magazine or whatever? <laughs> I, my twin brother and I were lucky enough to be the youngest of 10 brothers and sisters. So some of the pressure was taken off. You know, there wasn't like you got to uh, learn an actual skill. Uh, all my other brothers you know, have skills, real skills, not just, you know, writing. Um, and I have five sisters as well. It was, it was five brothers and five sisters, five left-handed and five right-handed. And five, five blue-eyed and five brown-eyed. So the odd uh, uh, manifestation of the genetic principles there, um, I can't explain that. Sometimes I attribute it to the fact that my parents ate a lot of day-old bread. Okay. Does something to the chromosomes. I'm sinister, which means left-handed. Oh, so you're left-handed? I'm left-handed. Yes. Wow. Um, well, I, there, there's a there's an old uh, there's an old folk way that left-handed people are more creative because of left brain, right brain. Apparently, there's nothing to that. It's yeah. like cops stopping red sports cars more often than red cars get stopped more. Than, no, an old radio talk show thing was when they'd get a lot of crazy callers, they'd go, must be a full moon tonight. Apparently no connection whatsoever between full moons and lunatic behavior, but uh, it's, it's useful to have the cliche in your back pocket. A, a lie that tells a truth. Isn't that what uh, writing fiction comedy might be? All right, there, we've got a summary of all the, no, I'll, I'll stop talking now. You were working at Letterman when you first got the job. Your brother was still writing on Saturday Night Live? I, I, well, let me see. Uh, 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 he'd actually written on Saturday Night Live before I got right. October 80. He, he, did, he did three separate stretches at Saturday Night Live. And I have to say, he was not really happy at any of them. One of them overlapped with Norm. So Norm actually worked with both of the uh, O'Donnell twins. He did not like television because it was way too collaborative. And at that point, way too many steps and stages along the way where some executive could say no. And he was he he was a bit more of an auteur than I in a way that he 
he didn't like he, he didn't like people that he knew were stupider than him giving him criticisms. It's hard to take when you're smart. Um, and I should mention about Mark, good looking as well. Um, <laughs> identical twin. He, he, he uh, I don't know if my career has been unconventional or not, but his is very hard to track because he had, he did, we both do clumsy cartoons. We're not very good cartoonists, but we like doing cartoons. And, and um, he had a couple of cartoons in the New Yorker, which is pretty good, but then three stretches on Saturday Night Live. But he also wrote poetry that he had published in real poetry journals and translated plays from the French. And he, uh, uh, near the end of his life, he, because he's deceased now, sad to say, he got a Tony Award for Hairspray, for the book, as they call it, the, the line written part of, uh, of Hairspray, the musical. So that kind of unusual career. But he always worked as a writer, except for like six months at Esquire magazine when he was 22. Um, never had to have a regular job. He, 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 he worked as a writer. So he'd be in the New York Times one week. And then the, he, he I mean, I like writing every day, too. Um, but he really liked writing a play or a story or a novel and having his name on it. And that's that. Um, and also just loads of fun to be around. It was always a treat at the Letterman show because they got to know me so well being the head writer and stuff. But he would come around and there'd be a lot of, oh, and there's, but he was like everybody's cousin, you know. And at Kimmel, when I, w I went 3,000 miles across the continent to work at Jimmy Kimmel Live, I was there for like three years and they knew I had a twin, but they'd never met him. Finally, he came out. He didn't like traveling. He finally came out because the Broadway show Hairspray opened in Los Angeles and he sort of had to come out for that. But he came to the Kimmel show and they made such a fuss over him, like sort of stroking and patting him like he was the, the first white man on New Guinea. <laughs> like we knew you had a twin, but here he is. Uh, they, they used us uh, off and on, at least on the, uh, uh, on the Letterman show, we did a couple of bits where we're, you know, coming out of a cloning booth or something like that. And on the, if you remember Strangers with Candy with Amy Sedaris and uh, Stephen yeah. Colbert, it's on, uh, uh, it's set in a high school, one of the settings anyway. And uh, Mark and I played the school librarians. I, I've gotten kind of used to getting calls over the years where it's like, um, Steve, we were trying to think of how to cast this really creepy role we came up with. And we thought of you. And I went, oh, good. Thank you. But Mark and I played the twin librarians who would finish each other's sentences in a sort of breathy Uriah Heap kind of way. And again, I've mentioned all those incidental joys and pleasures and adventures you get to have while writing. We never looked for parts like that, but they would turn up over time. Um, uh, anyway, the twinness, I'm just saying there's uh, uh, I know there's the Sklar twins who I've never met. You're a, a comedy uh, historian. Mm -hmm. I know they still function. For a while, they were they were to me it seemed incongruously on NPR. Do you remember that stretch? No, but I I know they were on America's Got Talent two years ago. Oh, were they really as judges or as professionals? No, just apparently you could be like a professional because Michael Winslow was a contestant on it, and those Police Academy movies were thirty years ago. The, 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 the Police Academy guy, Michael Winslow. Yeah, he was on he was on with oh, them wow. that year. I guess if you've never played Vegas, is the only stipulation. So Penn and Teller couldn't be on there. But 
like anybody else. Letterman could probably go on that show. Well, Letterman has done shows from Las Vegas, but it's not the same thing as no, playing, playing Vegas. By the way, I love the new sort of, it sounds like it's a like an Ivy League university. When a, when a singer or an entertainer has a residency, <laughs> We have a residency at Hollywood Palace, as if they were the, you know, the the Greek scholar in residence at Brown University or something. <laughs> uh, yes, um, Michael Winslow. Wow. Yes, boy, our brains are too filled with pop cultural detritus of all sorts. Another great thing about like working on late night shows, uh, uh, you get to know musicians and things like that, and and and. The first steadily paid job I got for writing at, at all it happened to be funny, but it was greeting cards for a year and a half. I'm going to mention a certain Northeast Ohio city, Cleveland, Ohio, a, a company called American Greetings, where, uh, um, where I got hired to write funny cards. And I was there a year and a half. It, it was very, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was very good preparation for late night writing because you wrote way more than ever got used. You got in the habit of doing it all day long. And you also got to know a sort of community of creative, funny people. At the greeting card company, it was these dozen cartoonists who I just thought were the most fantastic men and women. There were two women, and, but, and then all these these guys, which at the time seemed about the what the comedy room distributions often were. But it was such a, a great job that I really, really loved. I'm still friends with some of the cartoonists and fellow writers and so on. Um, uh, I'd, done, I'd done print work. I'd done newspaper and magazine articles and that kind of thing. I remember when I submitted a, a, a portfolio of material as well as a, 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 a specifically custom written package to Meryl Marco, the original head writer of the Letterman show. I included all these articles and, uh, you know, cartoons and things that I'd drawn. And uh, after I got hired, I, I might have ventured like, and so did you, how, did you like any of those articles? And she was just like, oh, Dave and I, we never looked at those. We didn't bother with those. They just went, they just went right to the, to the sample material, which makes sense, I guess. And, um, and I was fortunate to get that gig. She remains a friend too. Boy, talk about good luck to have. Uh, she was not looking for like professional experienced comedy writers at all when they were staffing uh, late night in 1982. She wanted people that did not know the rules. That was certainly me. I was, I'd never had any TV job. That was my first TV job as I'm letting But I was already working in my halfway there sort of atmosphere in the NBC tape library, um, which was in 30 Rock. So I could hand deliver my submission right onto Merrill's desk. And um, that was quite a pleasure. I, 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 the job in the tape library was so uh, uh, mind deadening and, and, and awful, and, but it was in 30 Rock, which was kind of a thrill and, and also this was in an era of post-it notes and stuff. I remember coming back from from uh, doing some horrible thing with the in the stacks of tapes themselves to my desk, and there was a note: Merrill Marco called, uh, wonders if you could come by their office. And I just went right to their office. I didn't even call back. They were staffing, you know. And um, uh, uh, when I showed up, 
Meryl was quite surprised. How did you get here so fast? And I just said, I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm in, in the building. But she called Letterman in, who I'd never met. I'd never met her either, of course, but I was overawed. And Letterman, too, said, didn't Meryl just call you a couple minutes ago or something? And, and I said, yes, uh, I, I work in the building. And I decided to eschew the return phone call. <laughs> and of course, Letterman latched on to eschew. I said, like, you hear that, Meryl? We've got a writer here, eschew. <laughs> and um, then I went back to my office. Also, I had the kind of job where you had to give two weeks notice. You couldn't just bolt over. And, and they were ready to have me come over right away. But I, I waited the two weeks out at the tape library. But I got to hear several monologue jokes um, before I joined the show itself. So Dave did some of my jokes while I was working at this old job. And I, you, you must understand and appreciate this, that the feeling you get when you hear your words spoken by someone you think is the greatest person in the world. <laughs> is such a, such, gives you such happiness, such a thrill. Dr. Katz, yes, a bullet, Jonathan Katz, is that the comic's name? Uh, yes. Everybody loved him. I, I, I could, it, it's a nice thing that years later people go, oh yes, Jonathan Katz, that he too was one of those, we kind of touched on it, the person who's in the horrible world of show business and the even often horrible world of stand-up comedy and still is a sweet, lovable, decent, Fellow. People always go, tell me some of your greeting cards. And I go, oh, I remember it doesn't. But no, I will say I'll monologue jokes just because it illustrates why I was not necessarily everybody's cup of tea as far as jokes go. Uh, I had had a category of jokes that I called new things to worry about or with something. Anyway, one of the things was Letterman said, I uh, having a feverish night of sleep last night when I suddenly bolted upright in terror because I realized I did not know the difference between knickknacks and bric-a-brac. And, um, you know, so, you know, there was a murmur of laughter at how queer that joke was. But over the years, that's the response I tend to get from my jokes. There's things like many of my pilot scripts and stuff, I'll be in, I would be in meetings with executives and they'd go, very witty, very whimsical, very whimsical. And I know what they're saying is like, get out of here. Where's the shitting in the sink? Where's the uh, anal rape and cannibalism, you know? <laughs> uh, or where's the denunciation of the uh, current uh, uh, bill before the House subcommittee? You know, like, yeah, okay, well, some people like that kind of thing. You know? But uh, yes, whimsical, that's been, that's been the, the, the damning cloud over my oeuvre. It, um, it's also not good when they go, this was really funny. Like, laugh if it's funny. If they say it's really funny. That's a profound question to ask because there are things that I just think are exquisitely funny that don't make me charter. And then there's things that are so dumb and so slapsticky, but I still am laughing. It's it's it, more than more than the the taste in food more than taste in music. I think the taste of what people find funny, what that each individual chooses to laugh at. I think there's a wider range in that than anything else. Even in my own family, like my dad was a very sarcastic kind of dry guy. He like, you know, some small amount of money would be, oh, that's a down payment on a ham sandwich. Or we'd pass some 
hoodlums idling on the corner and he'd go, oh, there's some leading citizens. There's some pillars of the community. You know, he was letterman in that way. Whereas my mom, if you took a newspaper and folded it up into a hat and marched around wearing it, she thought that was the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> By the way, my dad and Letterman did have a memorable exchange once that made me love both of them a little bit more. My folks had never been on an airplane, but they flew to New York to see a taping of the Letterman show because they're boosters, they're supporters. And they came up to Letterman's office. And I will say, however, however, um, challenging parts of doing the Letterman show was whenever you had sisters or brothers or nieces or nephews or my parents, Letterman treated them wonderfully. And it was pouring rain outside in New York City. And he and my dad started swapping Midwesternisms for downpours, you know, oh, dogs and cats. Oh, it's a real gully washer. Uh, you know, it's a real toad strangler. I remember the toad strangler line got the kind of closed up the proceedings, but it was, it was, it, it was a nice, it was a nice, uh, uh, a moment. Also my little nieces and nephews, and I've got dozens and dozens and dozens. <laughs> um, they used to come into Letterman's office and he'd let them throw pencils into the ceiling. You know all about the pencils. Into the ceiling. <laughs> it was sweet. I mean, there were nice things. There were also, I will not mince words. There were cruel Sisyphean endless vistas of never-ending work and uh, and sometimes psychic duress but you always believed in the show you know it was a, a bad day at the job wasn't just oh it's a bad day at the job it was like you cared about the show it was like seeing your country your native home your your native land you had a devotion to it so that so that so that any small failure you would anyway i suppose i'm describing obsession or or passion or something but it it, it wasn't just a gig you know right and i've certainly seen many many writers have jobs that are gigs i i've been i've been spared that mostly not entirely i've been very again the good fortune to have had gentle funny parents the very verbal sisters and brothers by the way i should mention and everyone who knows them will agree my sisters and brothers all way funnier than Mark and I are, but they, they only can be that way in the natural world, you know, the three-dimensional world. If you sat them down, they'd go, I, uh, whoa, what uh, should I do? Should it be like Godzilla does? You know, they would not know where to begin, but uh, uh, I was lucky in that way. I should also say when I went to Harvard and we were lucky to get the scholarships, the full, the full ride, at the Lampoon, there were people there besides visitors, you know, like Doug Kenny and Henry Beard. But Jim Downey was there, who you've undoubtedly heard people refer to as this sort of founding father of late night uh, comedy writers. He who went from the Lampoon uh, at school to Saturday Night Live and was there for decades and decades. But just the, the highest quality of sensibility and, and originality and brightness and funniness and just to have role models like that and role models like Meryl Marco and Dave Letter. Anyway, oh, I, I, I got to meet Jim Downey twice. Both times I was uh, online to go to tapings of Saturn. Well, the only two times I went and I asked him for his autograph and he wrote, this will be worth about 15 cents in 20 years, Jim Downey. And then six years later, I see him again. I'm like, oh, Mr. Downey, can I have your autograph? And he wrote, this would be worth about 15 cents 20 years from now, Jim Downey. 
Oh, he didn't adjust for inflation. No, well, didn't. what's funny is you should, you should post those online and see how much you would get from them. Well, um, I will tell another story about my twin brother that will contrast him in that one way from Jim Downey. Again, he wrote numerous books. And when one of his novels came out, I remember going to, to uh, stopping in the local Barnes and Nobles on Upper Broadway in New York. And they had featured it as the pick of the week. And there were just stacks of you know, dozens and dozens of them on a table. You know, and they said signed by the author. Uh, uh, and I picked up the first copy on top of the heap and opened it. And it said, don't tell the others, but you're my favorite reader, Mark O'Donnell. And I went, ah, ha, ha, ha. and then I read the one after that. And it said, please don't use my signature to forge checks and money orders, Mark O'Donnell. I went, what the heck? Then I pulled one from near the bottom and it said, look for a veiled reference to you on page 106. And I went, wow, he didn't have to do that. He could have just written just, he, most of they just signed their name or best wishes or something. Anyway, he had some kind of compulsion to change it up. Letterman frustratingly used to do the same thing. We'd have a bit that would have a pretty good line uh, and we'd do it in rehearsal. Um, or he might improvise a really funny line in rehearsal. And then when we're taping, he would do something else just because he didn't want to, he didn't want to bore himself in a way. In a way, funny to him already. Yeah, I had a conservative impulse to be just like, just do the line, just do it. It worked before, you know. <laughs> I was, but he 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 had something restless and discontent in him, uh, even about his own. Well, especially about his own performance. But I do remember that was one of the things long before I ever got to work for him. That when I saw him on television, because I had seen his morning show, I said, I like that about him. That 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 dissatisfaction, slight skepticism, not cynicism, but skepticism. And um, yes, quite, quite, that, that was a privilege for me, like, like so much of the work I got to do. Well, privilege to me to talk to you. I just want to ask you about two things. Viewer mail. I did a whole episode where I found people who had their letters answered on your mail. I meet them all the time. I meet them all the time. There's two or three who had like a dozen or more letters. We would read several from, I wish I could remember the names. It's odd I can remember Michael Winslow, the sound effects guy, <laughs> but I can't. No, there were, and there were even some future comics, uh, you know, that got that got letters in viewer mail. The, um, uh, it might've been one of my favorite segments just cause you could, you, you, you could go in so many directions. You could do a, a, a prepared, we try, there was a kind of method to it. We usually started with something small and got bigger and bigger, you know, you'd, you'd, a snappy, a verbal response. Then like some small desk item, a little prop, you know, that was a mock commercial product or something. Then you'd have someone in the studio, you'd have some live bit. It, it, usually your biggest, most prepared movie-like bit was the last, the last one. Not always, but there was something, something to it. And the variety of ways you could answer and work, it was just fun. Also, there's something about being thrown a challenge and then do something with this. Plus, so many of the letters were so plainly angling for a response that you were not going to give them. And you tried to avoid giving them exactly what they were asking for. Um, unless there was something funny in being so blatant and, 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 and straightforward as to do exactly that. Um, 
Uh, no, I have met people. Uh, the uh, when I went to work for Kimmel, writer's assistant, the most wonderful guy in the world, Mike Lynch, had um, had been in the audience uh, at a, a Letterman show and won a canned ham in some kind of audience competition and he still had the ham in his well his parents still had the ham in their freezer back in in lawrence massachusetts i'm trying to remember where he was from working class massachusetts is what i remember anyway great great guy now he's a therapist is there a connection who knows um yeah you meet people that were in audiences or wrote the viewer mail letters, whatever. Did you uh, get a letter on or anything like that? By the way, your name was familiar to me. It seemed like for a long time, but then I realized, could I be mixing it up with Mike Birbiglia? Because there's all those tumble of letters, you know? I, I know you claim to have some Alsatian background. May I take 40 seconds to praise someone that has probably never been praised online ever before. A junior high school classmate of mine who was my locker partner, Ron Spurgeon, a com we called them racks in Cleveland, hoods, greasers. He wore the leather jacket and had the greasy hair, but he was quite funny. And we took French class together. I know, a greaser in French class. But um, he sat next to this kind of more straight-laced guy named Al Morgan named Al Morgan. And we were learning about Alsace, Alsace. And, and, and uh, uh, Ron Spurgeon got it into his head, speaking in English to ask the French teacher, is it very beautiful? She said she'd been to Alsace. And, and, and he started this whole run of like, is it very beautiful in Al's ass? And of course, the the class all doing is talking about Al Morgan's ass. Do things grow in Al's ass? And he went on and on. It was the most extended, excruciating, humiliating, spectacular display in any um, well, French class that I can recall. Anyway, I, it, you've probably the subject of class clowns comes up, and how rarely they actually become stand-up comics or something. They usually end up becoming woofers or uh, or, or uh, gas station attendants or something. But but. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Of, I think uh, Dana Carvey claims to have been a class clown. I can sort of understand that. He'd be perfect at that. Again, a, a, a happy comic, you know? It's nice that there are some comics that are happy. I think anger and resentment and neurosis fuels a lot of comedy. And, um, uh, but there's some that are they're happy. My friend Paul Cohorst, my friend Jeff Martin, these are guys that go out and play golf and get holes in one and have lovely girlfriends. And you go like, wow, that's that's pretty good. But then there's the others who have just been, you know, lonely, isolated, social miscreants since childhood. And there's something in that too that's that's worthwhile. Uh, um, I, I can't I can't identify myself as as one or the other. I think I'm happy in some ways, but I mean I did have a, a enough of a way. Oh, here's an interesting. Just since you collect, um, I don't know if this observation is made before. When I worked with Norm Macdonald, I mentioned how I had to wear an eye patch as a kid because I had lazy eyes. My dad did too. Yeah, but it, but it was a clip-on flesh-colored plastic eye patch. I said if it had been a black pirate eye patch, I would have been so much happier to do that. And Norm said I had to do the same thing and the same thing he loved that i used the word wan it was a wan flesh-colored eye patch and then over the years i learned sarah silverman had to wear an eye patch when she was a kid and um i read it in her autobiography i've never met her but patty smith 
the same had to wear an eye patch. I'm trying to think who else. Anyway, there are a couple of comics who grew up wearing the eye patch. Being a little bit of a weirdo as a kid is going to predispose you. But I will say again, I've mentioned how many decades I've been doing this and how and how. Uh, 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 bent with age I am now. But I have seen comedy writing rooms go from largely bunch of maladjusted white guys to a much more attractive and diverse group of fairly handsome and well-adjusted people. And I go like, well, that's good in one way, but I, something's lost with something's gained. You know what I mean? It's definitely, you're going to get a wider social perspective and greater take some things. But when it was a bunch of Jewish and Irish and Italian goofballs, <laughs> Anyway, that's been, and of course, uh, like the Letterman show, there, there weren't really that many performers. Jerry Mulligan had been a stand-up comic and Chris Elliott, you know, was a, was a performer at heart. But everybody else was writer, writer, writer. Um, but I rarely see that now. The, the shows I've worked on now, I'm, I'm usually uh, 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 alone in not having done years of improv and that kind of thing. But occasionally I'll get some Again, the compliments I get tend to be left-handed. They'll be like, oh, Steve, you could have done improv. You'd be good at improv. You could probably do it. <laughs> In other words, well, I don't see you doing it. And uh, probably too late now. But uh, I, think I, that, right, I think that you're so quick. <laughs> I listen to you on, on podcast research. And well, I, there, you're is very part, there is some part of improv that I go like, well, isn't that called like going out to dinner isn't that called sitting at the table with your family or your friends isn't that improv you're trying to you're you're trying to be a step beyond straight informational you're you're trying to bring a little verb and style to to living i would call you a raconteur uh yes uh the raconteur i think of like Gorbidal, where things go on and on for a half hour um but that's, well, maybe that's a left-handed compliment. I'll no, add that to the list. I didn't mean it as a left-handed compliment. No, no, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to develop some leap motifs. Um, uh, 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 there, are, there are comics who are fantastically verbal. And then there are comics that are quite silent, you know, but what they do is on the page. You, you know the type, you know, the one that doesn't talk much, but what they do on the page is unbelievably great. Yeah, they um, turn me down for the show because yes, the reason why. yes, there there are many interesting types that way, and of course they people come into it now from so many different directions. Well, this the SCTV people. I mean, I think of like the 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 the, the personalities and the character types involved. Just because I I look at them like a sort of perfect zodiac of a of a comedy company. I've, um, I've had on uh, Brian McConaughey from SC from SCTV. Running staff. He had a connection to National Lampoon too, didn't he? What yes. he was a, yes. 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 There. Uh, well, the people that 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 did stuff in the vicinity and in the various incarnations of um, SCTV were quite interesting. I remember a journalist stealing, stealing, outright stealing a characterization I made of Eddie Gorodetsky once because I called him the Roger Sherman of comedy. And of course, everyone goes, who's Roger Sherman? He's the only founding father who signed the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution. There's some that have signed two, but not three. And Eddie Gorodetsky was the only guy I ever knew who had done SCTV, Saturday Night Live, and Letterman. I knew people who'd done two out of the three, but not all three. But anyway, all right, so 
And that was more like I was a raconteur, right? It, no, because Brian McConaughey, what he said was he was the only he's the only one who's done Saturday Night Live, SCTV, and The Simpsons. Oh, oh, wow! That's a very interesting proposition, boy. Because The Simpsons, they come from all over the place. There's plenty of former Letterman people. Um, wow, that's one to think about, Brian McConaughey. I'm gonna. That's for, I'll ask. Did you figure this out yourself, or is this something the Simpsons people? No, he, they offered him a, Simps a Simpsons episode um, in 2013, and he's like, "Well, I might as well do the hat trick of comedy." Oh yeah, okay. How great! It'd be interesting to figure out other overlaps. Like I was fully mature before I started putting together Buck Henry and Mel Brooks and Get Smart with the things that I liked later. You know, we're we're there's we're we're both half nerd about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I could do the Saturday Live dates and who was the host and musical guest. Oh, holy moly! That's that's a kind of not enfant terrible, uh, idiot savant, but I mean idiot in a good way. No, I know. Uh, that's quite remarkable. I've known some. I'm trying to think of uh, weird mental. I've known comedy writers who could instantly alphabetize any word or sentence. You know, how many A's, how many B's, how many C's. And you go like, well, it doesn't seem useful. But, um, uh, and I've known a few with perfect pitch. It, 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 it is kind of wonderful when the, it, 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 the variety of uh, uh, Futurama, for example, I think they had at least one PhD on their writing staff, Ken Keeler, who'd been briefly at Letterman and taught me words. Like I, I learned the word orrery from him, which is like a three-dimensional model of the solar system. And I went, oh, that's a good word, an orrery. So anyway, he may have the hat trick of working at Bell Labs, working at Letterman. Yeah, my, my, my bo I met my boss and we were talking about, he's like my age. He, and he was born uh, January 15th, 1977. So I was like, oh, the host was Sarah Live. Host was Ralph Nader. Musical guest George Benson. Special guest Andy Kaufman. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Kaufmans, I had a friend named Al Kaufman who was that way about baseball. You well, mentioned some mid-season game from 1973 between the Phillies and the and uh, who would they play? The Astros. I'll yeah. just say. And he would tell you the score. <laughs> That's hard. I mean, before the internet obviated that kind of skill, but I think there was for generations in every neighborhood there was the kid who knew the the sports statistic. Well, it's because because of my you know my book collection. There's oh oh that book. It's both wonderful and painful to see. Oh. They promised us that's the the Letterman book, the first yeah. Letterman book. Yeah, they promised us. They said. I was very leery about taking pictures off the screen. I said, it always looks, you know, like when you see them in Newsweek or Time, it always looks like grainy video image. They go, oh, no, we have this new technology, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they looked exactly grainy and blurry the way they did in Newsweek and Time. Uh, also, they didn't give us much time. You'll notice, by the way, I will take credit for one very weird joke that I did get some response to years and years and years later. However, they organized the book or wherever, put it together. It was all very hasty. And there ended up being about six blank pages at the end of the book. You could check yours right now. There, there were just empty pages at the end of the book. And I said, is there something we can do to 
we don't have time to write more stuff or edit more stuff, but I, I added a joke that said extra for experts or like, here's something for, you know, extra credit project, squeeze lemon, squeeze lemon juice on these pages for a special surprise. And of course, nothing was going to happen. But I did, over the decades, meet people who said they actually tried that and ruined their book. And they got to thank me much, much, much down the line. So, but this is good because, look, Larry Jacobson had him on, Steve Donald, talking to him now. Fred Graver had him on. Randy Cohen. Yes. Andy Breckman, Gerard Mulligan. And yes. that on. I'm, I'm friends with with most of those fellows and, 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 and my, yeah. Meryl Marco and, and Maria Pope and many of the ladies involved. I think the photo of the writers in the book, we have like a cardboard cutout of one or two of them that couldn't make the photo, which I thought was, you know, sweet, conscientious to our to our brothers in arms. There's not too many famous comedy writers. You know, you get the Mel Brooks's and the Carl Reiner's, but Buck Henry is in that really cool category for sure. Were your family supportive of your, of your, of your uh, hobby slash passion? Uh, uh, now I have talked about the other history buff uh, uh, comedy writers and comedy producers and comedy icons that I have had personal truck with. Uh, we talked on the phone a little. We might as well tell your podcast tease that, um, yeah, we had a chat beforehand. But my first day at um, Seinfeld, uh, I had a, 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 an entertaining uh, meeting with Larry David. He saw that I was reading David McCullough's biography of Truman, which he was also in the middle of reading. And we talked about that. And then Larry started talking about Truman in a way that I sort of knew he was secretly talking about himself. He was saying, oh, yeah, Truman, he didn't he didn't he didn't care. He didn't give a damn. He just said things the way they were. And if people didn't like them, they didn't like them. So they didn't like them in Washington. And um, I sort of took a quiet pause and said, yes, not like that nice Cordell Hull. <laughs> and Larry David could not have been more pleased with my extremely obscure and tedious reference to Cordell Hull. And he just started shouting, O'Donnell made a Cordell Hull joke, Cordell yeah. Hull. And for several days, he called me Cordell Hull. But anybody casually looking at Larry's work would go, oh, he makes jokes about John Tyler, the president that no one remembers. You know, he, he's, he's, he's definitely into history. And we did have interesting conversations off and on. I was not a major figure at Seinfeld, not a pillar of that institution, more of a shingle. But um, uh, I, you know, I do encounter the, 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 the history. Conan O'Brien seems to be quite the history buff and quite well-read yeah, and, and brave enough and, and, and centered enough that in all the various incarnations and podcasts and shows and, and uh, things he's offered, he'll have, you know, professors on, you know, somebody who's just written a new biography of Woodrow Wilson or something like that. And I'll go, that's a nice life. That's a nice life. History buff comedian. And of course, there's plenty of history shows, shows that have uh, that premises history, whether it's drunk history or history of the world. Uh, I did a, a not at all remembered, but intense memory for me. I did a, a, a half a year or so working with Dan Harmon, you know, of community and of, of you know, all this. Um, we did a show for the History Channel of all places about a time machine where we'd bring back people from the past and there'd be 
and and comics would would play the you know Sarah Silverman played uh, 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 Betsy Ross you know that kind of thing, Nick Kroll played Freud, and um, it, and it was fun. Dan Harmon was smart about a million things. He wasn't necessarily a history buff, but he had he had a lot of strong feelings and opinions about things. He was very it was like working with Orson Welles or possibly uh, uh, Saint Peter. Uh, very very intense. <laughs> uh, and it was a weird show too. The premise was that we weren't actually bringing the historical figures back from the past. We were just reconfiguring their DNA and programming it, which included their memories and thoughts and so on, into like a, this pile of sort of human genetic organic bisquick, you know, that, uh, uh, that we sort of cooked on a griddle. So the people we brought back could only exist for about an hour's worth of time. Yeah. And so that was the premise of the show. But I did get to meet, you know, Paul F. Tompkins. And so, the people came on that were very, very interesting that I did not know very well. And it was tremendous to see them always improve the script, always make it way better than it was. And and very instructive to, to, to and, and fascinating to watch Dan Harmon work too, because he's he also had about 11 other projects going on at the time. So he would come in and out like he was, you know, Jeff Koons dropping by to see how the giant balloon poodle is coming along. <laughs> uh, anyway, I've, I've, I've been fortunate in that way to work on shows like that. I, uh, um, and and it, it's a whole other program perhaps because there's so many interesting, odd issues and subjects and joys involved. Worked on several black shows, Chris Rock show. Who's, who has almost inexplicably remained quite quite uh, friendly and loyal to me, like brings me back to work on Academy Awards and stuff like that, that I don't even know that I'm good at. But I loved that job. That was such a privilege. I immediately made the correct decision to not change my manner or demeanor or outlook or style. So I would see like Ali Leroy, one of the black writers coming down the hallway and I'd, I'd go, Ali, give me five in an orderly fashion. And I would stick out my hand like a businessman and we'd shake hands like businessmen. <laughs> and they, they liked that. I was pitching some bit um, at Hannibal Burris where the premise was that, that 50 Cent, the, the rapper, was had declared bankruptcy, but he was asked about all the bling he wears. And he said, oh, people lend me this. People, I borrow the bling. And I suggested that Hannibal go out and see how much bling he can borrow, you know, by the camera crew. But after I pitched it that briefly, I looked around the room at the black writers and they said, first, let me explain what bling is. Bling is anything. And for a second or so, they're just like, what the heck? And then they realize I'm kidding them, like <laughs> as if I'm going to tell them what bling is. Ah, uh, you see, I'm whimsical. Uh, I, I, I loved working on those shows. They were some of the greatest people. You know everything, it seems. Hugh Moore, do you know that comic? He's, oh my God, did he do some funny things. He's someone that I, I'm sure it's just because he likes hanging around with his family or something like Jim Gaffigan. I thought he was one of the most spectacularly funny and he did funny voices and stuff too. He, he did, he did, also, I'm pretty sure the name is a pen name, right? Humor, like humor, right? I, who knows? But I was never quite bold enough to ask straight out. 
He used to do a bit where he was a ventriloquist with a dummy named Shy Tony. But Shy Tony was so shy that he would have to whisper what he wanted to say into Hugh's ear. And then Hugh would share that with the audience. And I said, oh my God, if that that's 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 Andy Kaufman level brilliant, you know, conceptual. Uh, Norm used to some you know, McDonald would sometimes complain nominally about, you know, meta humor or something, something that was conceptual. But in fact, he sometimes enjoyed those things. I know what he meant, though, you know, when somebody would deliberately present a bad joke saying, yes, but it's it's a it's a joke on a joke. And right. you, you, you get to be a you get it gets to be complicated, doesn't it? What a rich pop culture we have that we're the joke is that the joke is not that good is the oh it's tough it's complicated writing a bad joke is sometimes harder than writing a good joke uh yes although you can often just go to some some pop memory some racial memory of the million bad jokes i do remember a couple of times being ashamed of myself when i would write some bit for the stagehands at letterman where they'd come out and it would be like stagehand recipe hour and I wanted to do something that was deliberately boneheaded, you know, so Bob Rooney or somebody would go first, take the juice out of six cans of fresh squeezed Budweiser, you know, and, you go, and the crowd would go crazy. And I meant it's supposed to be dumb. Yeah, it's 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 weird. It's how crowds will react sometimes. I remember when I saw. Everything you ever wanted to know about sex, but we're afraid to ask the Woody Allen movie that had nothing to do with the book. But there's some there's some bit in there. Maybe it's about a, a cross dresser or something like that. But his wife is knocking on the bathroom door, going, "You know, Harry, are you in there? What happened? Did you fall in?" And the crowd laughed really loud at that line. I went, "Oh my God, that's supposed to be a a corny line, something that you've heard your 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 dad or aunt or mother or cousin or something say a million times." That's very. It's it it's anyway. That's one of the interesting. Um, propositions every single day what's what's the what what is the what are the listeners or audience or whatever what are they going to respond to or laugh at i went to see uh tommy boy with my friend uh when i was in high school dennis yes and there's a line in there that brian dennis he says to david spade he goes keep an eye on tommy boy till he gets his feet wet and my friend laughed and i'm like it's not a comical line. It's just an instruction of what David Spade's job is to do. He just it's said, an awkward sentence, though. It's like eye, feet, wet, eye, on, feet. And I just realized he never heard the expression until he gets his feet wet. Oh, it, it, is, it is funny what people... I worked... Here's another great gig I had for two years, working with Bonnie Hunt, doing a daily show... Uh, that was very much like a late night show. She was a natural talk show host because she was so talkative and verbal and almost everything she said was funny and she had a great family background and a Chicago accent and everything Everything about her was appealing to me. Um, but I pitched a bit where, she's, where she said uh, she made a mistake and went and got some plastic surgery the way all their Hollywood friends are doing, it was a big mistake. And then I said, we, we'll, we'll, we'll cut to this pre-tape where you have that joke, you know, where you paint or put little eyes on your chin and then turn it upside down and it looks like the mouth is talking, you know. She had never seen that before. And we're, we're both, you know, in our 40s or so at this point. And I go, really? You're, you're a professional funny person who grew up with seven brothers and sisters. 
and you never saw that upside down face because the mouth looks like it's really talking. I can't believe I'm explaining something this stupid, but it's just what people have never heard of. I remember when Hal Gurney, I remember um, on the Letterman show, he was the director and to do a favor for a neighbor, he, he, he got their kid an internship on the show and people did not like the kid. In fact, I think he even became the premise for a Gary Shandling episode, the weird intern. Um, but I remember Hal shaking his head and saying to me, no good deed goes unpunished. And, and I said, Hal, that's fantastic. That's hilarious. Did you just, and he thought I was kidding him, but I had never heard the sentence. I was 30 years old or 32 or somewhere around there, but I had never heard the sentence. Uh, um, yeah, who knows why or how that is, but anyway. <laughs> uh, one, last, one last question. What is that? And this, nobody on the podcast is going to know. What is that sign? Oishalung? The, the thing behind you in, in your office, the, the German. Oh, it's a it's a, like a poster for a dog show. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm not even especially fond of dachshunds. I know people are. I just like that graphic style. Oh, okay. I can't. I, I can't. What, you have a dog barking somewhere, right? Yeah. Once you mentioned dog show, my dog started barking. Yes, Alfstalon. I think that's how it's pronounced. It's not a language I know. I know a little bit of French, a little bit of Russian. They never take Russian when kids because of Sputnik, I guess. And my mom was Slovenian, so I spoke some Slovenian growing up. Um, uh, we talked to our dog in, in German. When, when, when we were done giving um, the table scraps, we'd go, Das alles. <laughs> and he, she knew, Das alles, no more. Yes, uh, basta, basta, sasufi. Ah, multilingual dog. Well, I remember being in a pensione in Florence, Italy, and in the room there was a toucan, and the, uh, the toucan in the cage in the Italian hotel room spoke Italian, you know, buongiorno, buongiorno, come sta? And I'm going, how can a bird learn Italian? It's crazy. <laughs> Again, that's how dumb I am. Well, uh, uh, you were, you were um, very, very uh, hospitable and uh, thoughtful right. to have me on your show. Again, I, I'll sure show Larry and get to Larry Jacobson. By the way, I used to call him Laffy Jacobson, the mayor of Comedy Town because he really seemed such a master. He was so on top of it. Mark reminded me of Maury Amsterdam from the Dick Van Dyke show. Yes, I'm trying to think, uh, Bill Sheft, have you ever gotten to meet Bill Sheft? No, I have not. He's got a kind of classic uh, comedy writer demeanor. I mean, a little overlap with the sort of racetrack cigar sort of thing. That's sort of wonderful. That's really great. And also the fact that he's quite smart and knows Greek and Latin. How about that? There's a lot of surprises in the, I could go on and on. There was a writer at Kimmel who had been a male stripper for several years. It wasn't something he experimented with. He did it for years and um, claimed to be a math genius as well, but he, he really was not. <laughs> but we loved him just the same. <laughs> um, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm hoping you have um, uh, more successful podcasts with other persons of all sorts. Isn't that great? Well, that you're doing a public service there 
I will. Well, I have others to look up to. They, uh, Zweibel, I want to watch. He's a very, very interesting and accomplished guy. All right. Well, very good. Nice to have met you, and um, me uh, and for having me into the stream yard where I've never been before. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. And, and All right. Nice meeting you, Ian. Nice meeting you. Goodbye now.